Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. He is played to sold-out crowds wherever he has appeared. On record, he has sold more than 50 million copies. As a composer, he has written songs recorded by virtually every major star. And now, he brings his unique talents to the motion picture screen. In his first starring role, Neil Diamond is... The jazz singer. The classic story of a man torn between family. I have things inside of me. I have to express them. I have my music. I have my life, my feelings. And fame. I just don't want to go through life thinking I could have been. Between what he is expected to do. You can't change what has always been. I love my father. I'll never do anything to hurt him. But I'm going to L.A. with you or without you. I am going to L.A. And what he was born to do. Love on the rocks. It ain't no big surprise. Those are palm trees. Just pour me a drink. Just welcome to California. My lies. Yesterday's gone. Now all I want is a smile. All right, one number, scale, one song, two and a half minutes. Three. Two and a half. Oh, all right, two and a half. All right, three. A fine new young singing talent, Jeff Robbins. Hey, Montcherry, if I take you home, will you make me bleed? Jeff tells me you've been a great help to him. I mean, every time we talk, it's Molly did this and Molly did that. Will you close the door? Please forgive me, but 3,000 miles away, you begin to wonder if he's telling me everything Molly did. I'm not your problem, Rivka. That's your problem. Hello, my friend. Hello. Good to need you so. The jazz singer. It's good to love you like I do. The story of a man born to be a star. When I hear you say. And the woman who wanted to see him make it. Hello. Olivier, Lucy Arnaz, and Neil Diamond. The Jazz Singer. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the remake of The Jazz Singer from 1980. The studio is EMI Films. The release date was December 19, 1980. 
The running time, 115 minutes with the rating of PG. The budget was $13 million, and the box office took in $27 million, making it the 22nd ranked film of 1980. It wasn't the box office bust that everyone seems to think. Now, all the critics, on the other hand, hated the film, for the most part. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 19% rotten from 21 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, Neil Diamond's foray into acting is a total miss in this gaudy and unconvincing remake with Laurence Olivier on hand to deliver an excruciatingly campy performance. And Roger Ebert at the time gave it 1 out of 4 stars. And here's his review. The jazz singer has so many things wrong with it, that a review threatens to become a list. <laughs> Let me start with the most obvious. This movie is about a man who is at least 20 years too old for such things to be happening to him. The jazz singer looks ridiculous, giving us Neil Diamond going through an adolescent crisis. The movie is a remake, of course, of Al Jolson's 1927 The Jazz Singer, which was the first commercially successful talking picture. The remake has played with time in an interesting way. It sets the story in the present, but it places the characters in some kind of time warp. Their behavior seems decades out of date, and some scenes are totally inexplicable in any context. Laurence Olivier plays the aging father in the film in a performance that seems based on that tortured German accent he also recently used in The Boys from Brazil, Marathon Man, and A Little Romance. Is it too much to hope that Sir Lawrence will return to the English language sometime soon? Diamond's whole presence in the film is offensively narcissistic. His songs are melodramatic, interchangeable, self-aggrandizing groans and anguished shouts, backed protectively by expensive and cloying instrumentation. His dramatic presence also looks overprotected, as if nobody was willing to risk offending him by asking him to seem involved, caring, or engaged. Diamond plays the whole movie looking at people's third shirt buttons, as if he can't be bothered to meet their eyes and relate to them. It's strange about the Diamond performance. It's not just that he can't act, it's that he sends out creepy vibes. <laughs> he seems self-absorbed, clothes off, grandiose, out of touch with his immediate surroundings. His fans apparently think Neil Diamond's songs celebrate worthy human qualities. I think they describe conditions suitable for treatment. <laughs> and that's the end. Of Roger Ebert's review. Alright, I agree with portions of Ebert's scathing review of the film, which I'll cover when I get into the actual scenes, but it's fairly obvious he's just not a Neil Diamond fan musically, which is fine, of course. However, if you don't dig Neil Diamond's music, then there's pretty much no chance you're going to like the film at all. So Ebert already had one strike going in before even watching a second of the movie. Now, for myself and my family... Neil Diamond was huge in my musical upbringing, and because of this, the jazz singer will always hold a special place in my film viewing history for a few reasons. One, as a small child, you know, between the ages of three and five, Neil Diamond was my absolute favorite artist. According to my parents, all I would listen to is Neil Diamond. I would listen to his records, his tapes, even his eight tracks. Yes, I'm old enough to remember eight tracks. And the legend goes, when people would ask my name... I'd say Neil Diamond. Now, I've seemed to have blocked this memory out, but my parents like to remind me whenever they can. And I do remember having an extra stocking hanging on the mantle for Neil during Christmas. Of course, the irony being that Neil Diamond is Jewish, but those are minor details. So my family had a copy of The Jazz Singer, which was taped by my uncle who had HBO. 
We didn't have cable until I was like in eighth grade. So this copy of the Jazz Singer movie lived in infamy with my family because halfway through the movie, the channel suddenly changed and we're stuck watching the Lou Grant show starring Ed Asner. (laughs) Now for years, I had no idea how five to ten minutes of the movie went. The mention of Lou Grant will always bring great laughs from my family, even 30 years later. So yes, while the movie leaves a lot to be desired, the soundtrack is still stellar, with many of his better-known songs being recorded for this album. You think of America, Love on the Rocks, and Hello Again. And, spoiler alert, at the end of this episode, you can hear an in-depth review of the soundtrack, featuring my mom, Joanne. Alright, let's get into the main cast. You have Neil Diamond, who plays Jess Robin. This would, of course, be his one and only film that he starred in. He would appear as himself in 1999's Lost and Found, and he also had a very funny appearance in 2001's Saving Silverman, as the main characters in that film have their own Neil Diamond tribute band. As Ebert mentioned, Diamond was way too old for this type of role, but I get why he was picked. He was one of the most successful singer-songwriters of his generation, and he had countless hits in the late 1960s and 1970s. And so while this film always gets roasted, again, it wasn't a box office bomb, and Diamond even scored three of the biggest hits of his career. So regardless of the film's legacy, it never hurt his music career in the slightest. Lawrence Olivier plays Cantor Rabinovich, and getting Olivier for this film was a huge coup because he was and is still considered one of the finest actors in history. But it is amusing that just four years prior, he played one of the most despicable characters in the history of film for The Marathon Man, where he played Christian Snell, the Nazi dentist. And then in The Jazz Singer, he plays a very religious Jewish Cantor. That's the power of a great actor. Lucy Arnaz plays Molly Bell, and if you didn't know, Arnaz is the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. So it was no surprise she got into show business and started with small roles on The Lucy Show in the 1960s. She later played Lucy's daughter on the 1970s show Here's Lucy. Arnaz eventually branched out to film and theater before landing a role in The Jazz Singer. The director was Richard Fleischer, and Fleischer started in the business directing short films in the 1940s, and some great early 1950s film noirs like Trapped, Armored Car Robbery, and The Narrow Margin. His most well-known films were adventure tales like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and The Vikings, Fantastic Voyage, and the original Dr. Doolittle, along with the sci-fi classic Soylent Green with Charlton Heston. And fans of Arnold Schwarzenegger will know that he directed the sequel to Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, and Red Sonja. All right, let's get into the making of the film. The first day Lawrence Olivier showed up on set, he told everyone to just call him Larry. He had no big Hollywood ego at all. Caitlin Adams, who played Rifka, who is Neil's wife in the film, couldn't have played more opposite roles just like Olivier did with The Marathon Man. For example, her character in The Jerk was a no-nonsense motorcycle-riding badass daredevil who worked at a circus. And the jazz singer, she's a meek, boring, Debbie Downer, Cantor's wife. Jerry Leiter, the producer of the film, was back in the United States after running Warner Brothers International, and then he started his own production company. One idea that kept popping up was how Neil Diamond was an icon in the music industry for his generation, just like Frank Sinatra and Al Jolson before him. And then the idea of remaking the jazz singer with Neil sort of just took shape. Neil was interested if they could obtain the rights to the film, and it took a year for that to happen. Once they got the rights, the production and the script took shape, and Neil went to work on the score and the songs for the film. And this process took about six months, 
though Neil Diamond needed back surgery during this time. And then, after that, they started shooting the film. Lucy Arnaz was on Broadway in a musical that Leiter saw and really liked her performance, and met with her about the role of Molly for the film, and almost immediately signed her for the film. She is definitely one of the highlights of the film for me, and even Ebert agreed with that. However, Arnez had conflicts with other agreements, and Jacqueline Bissett was actually approached but wanted too much money for the role of Molly. Deborah Raffin was then cast, but the original director, Sidney Fury, and the writers kept adjusting the script, which led to Raffin leaving the film. And then Fury was fired and replaced by Richard Fleischer, and then Lucy Arnaz was brought back. So the Film Academy probably took the poor reviews and ignored the brilliance of the score and the soundtrack that Neil Diamond created. He had three major hits that were 1980 staples that could have easily been recognized by the Academy that year, but they weren't, which is a shame. It's also strange because something like Flashdance isn't a great film at all, but the music got its due, and rightfully so. All right, let's get into the film. It begins with what became an enormous hit for Neil Diamond, and that is America, and one of his most signature songs, which is saying something because he already had a ton of hits from the 60s and 70s. As you will come to find out from this film, while the film leaves a lot to be desired, again, the soundtrack is just top-notch. The opening bars of America are just chilling. The strings are perfect. It's a great way to start the film, and also an album. Also, the logo with the bright yellow lettering and, and silhouette of Neil singing into the mic with his other hand outstretched is pretty iconic for the 1980s. We then cut to scenes of New York, including the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. We see people from different cultures all living in the same place, which, of course, is the theme of the song and, frankly, the idea of the United States of America in general. We then cut to a Jewish temple where Bubba, Franklin Ijaye, is waiting for his friend Jess, that's Neil Diamond, to finish his Friday night service because he's a cantor. Now, if you didn't know, a cantor is someone who leads the worshippers in song or prayer during a service. And Jess is performing with his father, Laurence Olivier. And you might remember Ajaye as TC in the film Car Wash, who wanted to be the comic superhero called The Fly. So this ends up being a really funny scene because Jess knows that he's late to meet Bubba and speeds up the service by skipping the words all the while Bubba is sitting in the back watching as his yarmulke keeps falling off his head. Trust me, anyone who has sat through a Jewish ceremony has felt Bubba's pain with that thing not staying on your head.
Clover, it's the rush. Taking a donor along so jizzy. I'm hmm? sorry, Pump. Look, I promised Rivy that I'd take her over to the library oh, before it Rivy. closes. That explains. Okay, I gotta run. If you were married a few more years, she'd be going by herself or. Rivy, come with us. We're gonna have a good time. Oh, you're really crazy, you know Come on, we'll have a good time. What, and give up all the fun I'm gonna have in the library tonight? All those people saying, shh. You cover for me. I'll make it up to you later, okay? No problem. Jess's birth name is Yusel Rabinovich, but he goes by Jess Robin and his life outside the temple. His wife is named Rivka, played by Caitlin Adams. He grew up with her, and Jess is a fifth-generation cantor who wants to perform and sing outside the confides of his Jewish faith. So, for example, on this particular night, he's going to perform with his buddy Bubba and an R&B band, and they're going to perform at an all-black club. However, Jess wasn't aware of this and doesn't realize that he's going to have to adjust his look a bit. 50, 50 bucks, man. Hey, there's Timmy. Uh, Say, you know what time yeah, it is? Hey, Come on, we're late. Hey, relax a little bit. Hey, wait a minute. This is a black club. Be it's cool. All right, it's all right. Hey, how you guys doing? Hey, what's happening? I thought y'all got mugged or something. I'm sorry. Hey, what's happening, Jess? All right. Kidding? Listen, I got an idea. You do it with three. You know, I didn't do it with three. Oh, man. I keep telling you, man. We got an agent coming down to see four brothers, Jess, and that's what we got to give him. We got to. Now, how are we supposed to know that Teddy would get himself busted? 30 days for parking his own garage? Right, in somebody else's car? Hey, squash that, squash that. Well, look here, man. This is our last chance. You understand? And you wrote the songs, and you don't have to do none of the fancy shit, so you have to be Teddy tonight. Who else can do it? (laughs) Nobody but you. You're gonna do it, ain't you? Okay. All right. All right. We do it, man. Hey, blood, plasma, whatever you want me to call you, brother. If you don't get your three, four black asses out here, I'm gonna have to put on another act. But please tell me that ain't no white man. Please. One, two, three, four, brother. Takes a lot of time if you want it right. Takes a lot of time and believe in me. Gotta see the signs and all you'll get it right. I see the signs in your eyes and I know that it's you, baby, baby Ooh, baby, baby, now You, baby, baby Only a blind man would leave you behind, but not me It takes a lot of loving to make it good Ooh, it takes a lot of loving, believe me, baby so it's understood Me, I believe in the things I keep seeing in you Baby, baby
So about the last scene, today's viewers might just lose their minds and break Twitter, you know, whatever that means. Uh, but let's let's do some backstory. This particular scene was a nod to the original jazz singer from 1927 with Al Jolson and his use of blackface. So yes, I get it. It's outdated, but I'm just passing along some history. And the jazz singer from 1927 was also the first talking picture, as Ebert pointed out. Also, this scene is actually pretty funny, since it's obvious Jess isn't black, and of course forgets to paint his hands, which Ernie Hudson, would, who of course was Winston from the Ghostbusters, uh, he's an agent in the, in the crowd, he notices, causes a riot in the club. Also, the guy who introduces the band is none other than John Witherspoon, who is always hilarious. And I actually like that song, You Baby. The next morning, Jess's father bails his son and his buddies in the band out of jail. And he learns that his son doesn't use his birth name when outside the Jewish neighborhood. Come to get my son, Yasin. Jess Rabinovich. No, we ain't got no Jess Rabinovich. We got a Jess Robin. Uh, are you the candidate the lady called about? Yes. Would you sign right there, candidate? Okay, guys, you can be over Woo! I told you, Richard. Hey! Hey! Hi, Bob. Okay. Uh, I can explain this, Bob. Um, you may not believe this, but uh, funny thing happened on the way from Shul. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. See, he's we just were... doing a favor for us. <laughs> I know your father, 20 years. He's a fine man. Look, we really appreciate you bailing us out, Cannon. Yeah, yeah, you really saved our ass. Staying in. Act, act. It's not tough enough being a Jew. Hey, man, sorry, Jeff. Rivka is a teacher at the synagogue and pleads with Jess to tell his father the truth about his singing outside the synagogue. 
Jess goes home to talk with his father, who is less than pleased about his son being arrested and even more baffled why he doesn't use his real name in public. Jess explains it's just a performing name, which of course is common for many performers to change their birth names when getting into show business. Jess admits he's been performing shows for a long time now for the extra money to help with the family, and his father, though, believes he should honor his faith and only perform for God in the temple. However, Jess has talent and dreams that life outside the small world his father wants to keep him in is much better. Plus, he's basically living at the poverty line because the temple can't pay well. His father believes his voice was a gift from God and should be used as such. Jess just doesn't want to live in the old world, but his father thinks he's abandoning his faith. So Neil Diamond got some flack for his acting chops in the film, but I personally never had a problem with his acting at all. Is he Olivier? (laughs) No, of course not, but I think he fit the character pretty well, especially compared to the other musicians who have tried acting in the past. That being said, yes, he was way too old for this role. But they needed an established artist, especially with the music, and as it turned out, they were right about the music. So Bubba is pushing Jess to fly out to Los Angeles with the group and perform some gigs to see if they can get his songs heard and if he can get signed to a record deal out there. Jess turns down the offer as he's trying to adhere to his father's wishes. That night, Jess tells Rifka about Bubba and the guys going to California. She's happy because she feels exactly like Jess's father, that he should be using his talents for the temple. Jess is in a funk and he needs to pursue his dreams that nobody feels that he should. And that night, he writes a structure to a song on the guitar that will become Love on the Rocks. So a few weeks go by, and while tutoring a kid for his upcoming bar mitzvah, Jess gets a call from Bubba, who's now in Los Angeles. Jess had sent him a demo of Love on the Rocks, and an agent loved it and played it to a top producer and wants him to come out to L.A. and have a big-name artist record the song and the other songs he's written. And by the way, the timeline in this film is not good at all. Trust me, there's a huge timeline issue later in the film, and you've been warned. Bubba tells Jess that the record label will fly Jessica and Rifka out, all expenses paid, to L.A. for two weeks to record. It's really a dream come true for Jess, but he knows it's not going to fly, no pun intended, with Rifka and his father. Also, he's got less than 24 hours to decide because he needs to be out there by the next day. So he tells Rifka about the offer, and no surprise, she's less than thrilled. But Jess finally puts his foot down, and he says he's going to go with or without her. And to further complicate things for Jess, that night is the 25th anniversary for his father being a cantor, and they're throwing a party for him. Jess talks to his father, who has the expected reaction just like Rivka. His father believes once he leaves, he'll never come back. But Jess reassures him that's not the case, and he's going for two weeks, and that's it. His father is emotional, but surprisingly consents and agrees begrudgingly that Jess should go. So, it's time to celebrate, and of course, you have to sing Hava Nagila. Jess is ecstatic, while Rivka is Debbie Downer, like she always is. 
scared of you to sell. Come on, this is a time to be happy. No sadness, no sadness, no. huh? Come on, we're gonna sing, we're gonna sing. Nagila hava, nagila ve mismaka hava, nagila hava, nagila hava, nagila ve mismaka hava, na 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 na, hava na 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 na, hava na 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 na. I think that all aspiring musicians have to go through this struggle. The odds are absolutely stacked against them for making it. And if you have a shot, even if it's a long shot, of potentially making it in an extremely tough business, you should at least give it your best try. Nothing is worse than not even attempting. The next day, Jess arrives in Los Angeles and is met by Molly Bell, that's Lucy Arnaz, and she's an aspiring music agent. Of all the characters in the film, Molly and Bubba are by far my favorites. She's got a great personality, she's fun to be with, pretty much the exact opposite of Rivka. You can see where I'm going with this comparison. Jess and Molly head to the studio, and the guy that's going to record Jess's music is kind of like a fourth-rate Billy Idol clone named Keith Lennox. He's acting punk, but he's, he just looks like a poser. Also, he's singing Love on the Rocks like a sped-up rock song instead of a ballad, which is kind of hilarious. That's his style, mister. Made him a millionaire. The thing is, it's too fast, you can't hear the words. Yeah, that's why we brought you down here. You change the tempo, you're gonna change the lyrics. 
What are you playing? Hey. I told you three, how many times? Three times I've told you. It's too slow. Do you understand? It's too slow. I want it faster, all right? Faster. You can hear the boom boom in here, darling. It sounds wonderful. I don't give a monkey's what you can hear, alright? Look, we're gonna push Shut up. it! Just shut it, alright? Mr. Rossini, well, if he tries it as a ballad, it'll really help him. Why don't you go and tell him that? When he'll listen to you, I mean, you'll take advice from anyone in this visa. Go on, I'll tell him. Okay. Yes, just be cool. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's a mistake. It's cutting these audio I can get. Mr. Lennox? Hi, I'm Jesse Robin. I wrote this song. Mm -hmm. Did you do it? Uh, I think it might help you if I did it as a ballad, you know, the phrasing. Yeah, okay, fine, go ahead. Can I do it? For you? Go ahead. Jess decides he's heard enough of this guy butchering his song and asks if he can perform it like how he wrote it. The producer lets Jess do it since he's tired of being yelled at by the douchebag rocker, so he figures Jess will get the brunt of the yelling now. Uh, can I ask the band to play the major seven chords in the, uh, in the bridge and take it real easy? Real easy tempo. Three, four. Love on the rocks Ain't no surprise Just pour me a drink And I'll tell you some lies Nothing to lose, so you just sing the blues all the time. Well, no big surprise. Love on the rocks, just like the song. Uh, Keith Lennox isn't impressed and tells him to piss off and take his buddies with him. So, in an hour, Jess and the guys' dreams of making it big are over. Even Molly gets fired after telling Keith that the song should be performed the way it was written. The guys go back to Molly's apartment on the beach and decide to have some fun and party and blow off some steam. They play some songs and Jess starts to connect with Molly. You can tell Jess really loves being around musicians and playing music because that's in his soul. Not this canter shit. <laughs> so Molly is super cool and recorded the demo of Love on the Rocks he played in the studio and gives him a cassette of it so he can shop it around. Molly believes in Jess's talents, though Jess thinks his big shot is over. Molly convinces him to finish out the two weeks in Los Angeles and see what happens. Molly agrees to try to get Jess's tape heard by any record executive she can. Her biggest mark is Eddie Gibbs, that's Sully Boyer who is also in Car Wash, and he's a booking agent. If Jess can get some gigs, he can hopefully draw some attention. Molly sees Eddie getting into his car and just gets in as well. Eddie thinks he's being robbed as Molly reaches into her pocket like she has a gun, but really she's just reaching for a cassette. Again, Lucy Arnaz is the best part of this film in so many ways. Molly hilariously plays Eddie the tape, and he likes what he hears, so Molly suggests Jess can just open up for one of Eddie's big acts. <laughs> Eddie indignantly says he just can't book a guy from a tape and kicks her out of the car. 
So for the Eddie character, Don Rickles was actually the first choice, but his schedule didn't work around the film, which is too bad because Rickles would have been hilarious. Though Sully Boyer really does a great job, but Rickles was the master. Back at Molly's apartment, Molly is upbeat as Eddie liked the song, and Jess plays her another song that he just wrote called Hello Again. Of course, it's another hit in the making, and Molly knows it. So remember when I was talking about the lack of a proper timeline? Well, the two weeks are officially up, and the only reason we know this is that it's so briefly mentioned by Jess. Bubba magically gets Jess a a showcase at a local club, so of course Jess stays another week. Though it could be three years the way the movie presents it. No surprise, the crowd loves Jess, and even Eddie shows up. However, he leaves halfway through the set. But this isn't because he didn't like Jess. It was just too loud for him, and it was killing his ears. Eddie actually loved Jess, and he gives him the opening gig for a big-name comedian. Yes, this was back in the day when comics actually opened up for musicians, and musicians opened up for comics, like that Albert Brooks bit I played in the Defending Your Life episode, where he opened up for Richie Havens and actually (laughs) Neil Diamond. So for all those performances uh, for Jess Robin, that is actually Neil Diamond's real backing band, uh, with the exception of the backup singers for the film. Jess calls Rivka to tell her the good news. And of course, Debbie Downer throws cold water on Jess again and wants him to come home. What a drag she is. Of course, his father is the same way, but neither of the depressed twins can bring down Jess's upbeat mood. We then cut to Jess opening for the comedian, and as expected, Jess kills it. The crowd initially is slow to warm up, but he wins them over, and they really love him in the two songs he performs, Summer Love and Hey Louise. Now, what's really not realistic about this performance is that Jess is magically given this huge backing band full with an orchestra and string section. And Ebert even mentioned in his his edited review that that would have cost like (laughs) $80,000. You know, no unknown musician is going to get that. I know it's a minor beef, but, you know, Ebert noticed the same thing. What's funny is that Rivka shows up to the gig as a surprise, and her and Molly have a polite but awkward meeting. But anyone watching this movie knows Molly is way cooler of a person. Jess tells me you've been a great help to him. I mean, every time we talk, it's Molly did this and Molly did that. That's very nice of him. Please forgive me, but 3,000 miles away, you begin to wonder if he's telling me everything Molly did. I offered him my body once. He settled for a pizza. (laughs) How can you leave all this? Does he have to? It's, uh, it's more complicated than that, Molly. You can't understand. We're different. It goes back to our parents, to our you're, life. You're right, Rivka. I don't understand. I, I know very little about where he comes from, about you or the hold you all seem to have on him. But I, I know where he's going. Listen to him. Just look at him. I'm not your problem, Rivka. That's your problem. Of course, Debbie Downer just can't be happy for Jess and is trying to get him to come back to New York after the best night of his life. Jess has caught the fever, 
and it's more cowbell. I kid. But, yeah, no way. He's, he's not going back. He's on the rise. Rifka leaves, and Chess knows it's time to move forward with his career without the old ball and chain. Rifka wants to be a cantor's wife, and that is all the aspiration she has. All right, again, the shitty jazz singer timeline comes into play, and I guess it's like a week later, though it could be a few weeks. Who knows? But Jess can't get a hold of Molly. She's been steering clear of Jess because she doesn't want to get in the middle of the drama between him and Rifka. Well, it's clearly over between Rifka and Jess because she went to New York without him. So Jess finds Molly, and he talks with her in a cute scene where she gives Jess a white lie about going to Acapulco with a guy, but she really isn't. So then it's an excuse for a montage called Acapulco, and they start to really get to know one another. They have walks on the beaches, home-cooked meals where she makes a ham. You know, Jews aren't big on ham, by the way. It's a funny scene. They're recording in studio sessions, and then the culmination of their dating montage with a fully recorded version of Hello Again and, of course, a love scene. So things are going great for Jess. He's recording his music to perfection. He's in love with a great woman. Nothing can bring him down. That is until his father shows up and finds Jess living with Molly. It goes as well as it can be expected, and again, pleads with Jess to go back to New York to be a cantor. After realizing that Jess is in love with Molly, his father disowns him. Good riddance, I say. Even as a kid, I was like, it's sunny in Los Angeles, and you could sing great music as opposed to the dreary New York climate and awful wife. (laughs) So after the meeting with his father, Jess goes on a downward spiral. Though the movie decides to speed up the process in about five minutes. So his dad disowns him, and then he throws a fit during a rehearsal with an, for an upcoming TV appearance and storms off and drives away and eventually runs out of gas on the highway and hitchhikes to God knows where. He just leaves his very nice car, which is a Mustang, I think, on the side of the road and never bothers to pick it up for the rest of the film. We also found out during Jess's little tirade that Molly is pregnant when she tells Bubba during a break in the rehearsal. This is where the movie, at this point, makes absolutely zero sense. It's like they ran out of money and came back and piecemealed the film. So Jess decides to leave everything behind, and he just goes out on the road like a nomad, like he was born to walk alone. (laughs) Thank you, David Coverdale. But yeah, I've never seen a movie just so batshit crazy with the inconsistencies and the timeline. It's like the producers said, as long as we've got some new Neil Diamond music for these random road scenes, the audience will buy into it. You know, continuity be damned. Anyway, Jess grows a beard, grabs a cowboy hat, and plays some bars in Texas. It is so random. (laughs) I can't believe it's even included in the film. But at least you get Neil singing, You Are My Sunshine. It's not on the soundtrack. Morning. I need a job. I got a little extra time. Uh, how about playing you two? <clears throat> what do you want to hear? Mm, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> you are my sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> my daddy told me that one. You are my sunshine. This one, right? Yeah, that's my right. only sunshine. You make me happy. When skies are gray, you know words. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. <laughs> hey, hey, you got yourself a job, boy. Yellow night, dear. 
After his little gig, Bubba shows up after looking for Jess for a while and hands him a picture of Charlie Parker Rabinovich. Yep, his newborn son. So we're to believe that Jess left the studio in a huff one day, and from a montage and a few country songs and a beard, that he's been gone for eight to ten months? Get the fuck out of here. Again, no movie that I can think of has had a worse timeline than The Jazz Singer. The movie really isn't that bad at all, but I'm, I'm telling you. But there's no defending this part of the story. Anyway, what happens? Does Jess go back to Molly? Of course, because she's totally cool with the bearded songbird just magically reappearing. Does he make amends with his father? What do you think? Does he cap it all off with a rousing rendition of America? You better believe it. I will smack you in the mouth. I'm Neil Diamond. We'll have to play that Will Ferrell bit from Saturday Night Live, of course. It's time now for VH1 Storytellers, with today's special guest, recording legend, Neil Diamond. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello, everyone. They've told me before I came on the show that I was supposed to tell the stories behind my most popular songs and then play them. I said, cool, let's do it. But Gary over here was a little shy. Uh, come on, Neil, give me a break, man. <laughs> this first song... Thank you. Thank you. That, of course, Sweet Caroline. I wrote that song after a big show at the Forum. Gary and I had been drinking pretty heavily, and we were driving. Oh, I can't believe you're going to tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we were driving down this dark road, and... I hit a kid. So we got out and sure enough he was dead. So we just took off pretty fast. And two hours later I wrote Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Good times never seem so good. It gets crazy on the road and awful lonely. That's why I love pornography. This next song is all about my love of hardcore, barely legal porno. Gary knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, he likes that really weird porno you can't send through the mail. I'll be honest, it ain't cool. It creeps out the whole band. Well, if my bizarre, insatiable, and downright dangerous sexual habits led me to write this song. Oh, crackling rose, get on board. We're gonna ride till there ain't no more to go We're taking it slow Let's all do the best we can I can turn invisible if I really try hard 
I, I can't quite remember how that one goes. I, I gotta admit, I'm a little high. <laughs> Kenny over here gave me some dynamite pills. Hey, come on, man. Hey, cool out. Just everyone cool out. Cool out! <laughs> this next song you all might like. Few people know that I'm fueled creatively by my massive hatred of immigrants. <laughs> Gary and I have gone on for hours about how much we hate foreigners. Right, Gary? Leave me out of this, man. No, I will leave you in! <laughs> well, my love of this great and beautiful nation and my hatred of all people with dark skin led me to write this. <laughs> On the boats and on the planes They're coming to America Never looking back again Just do the best you can You hate your keyboard player Because he's black Never had the courage to tell him so Ow! Ow! Hey, man, you're a wreck! Oh, come on! I think I tore some stitches. Come on, Gary, help me out. No, that's enough, Neil, man. You gotta chill out. I'll smack you in the mouth. I'm Neil Diamond. Okay, that's it. I'm gone. That's it. Wait. This next song I wrote after I killed a drifter to get an erection. <laughs> Forever in blue jeans. Where you going? Do the best you can. All right, some fun facts. According to Lucy Arnaz, Neil Diamond was nervous about his acting debut and would become irritable when he could not do a scene. The two directors handled this situation very differently. Original director Sidney Fury was intimidated by Diamond's status as a successful musician, and he would have the script rewritten to Taylor Diamond, whereas Richard Fleischer would calm down Neil and work with him on the scene. After the movie was finished, Sir Lawrence Olivier went to New York City for a short time and had dinner in a restaurant with friends. During the dinner, he recalled to his friends something he said about the movie while Sidney Fury was still directing. His quote was, This piss is shit. <laughs> Olivier later said a reporter must have been at the table next to his because the next day in the New York Daily News, they reported what he said, though both vulgar words were changed and, clean, and cleaned up. Uh, the derogatory words. The news soon spread completely across the country and then threats of lawsuit in the air and, and Olivier quickly made a statement to the press claiming that in the end, the movie had been well made and that he totally supported it. Olivier also wrote a handwritten 10-page letter to Richard Fleischer, not only apologizing for the restaurant incident, but also indirectly giving an explanation as to why he was making so many movies strictly for the money. As it turns out, he was making a million dollars for the jazz singer. As it turned out, director Richard Fleischer reshot a great deal of Olivier's scenes because he felt Olivier had overacted. When Olivier asked Fleischer why they were doing these scenes again, Fleischer explained the truth in a diplomatic manner, that he did not like how the scenes had originally been staged. Near the end of the shoot, Neil Diamond was having trouble with the scene where he storms into the recording booth in a rage and has a heated argument with Molly. During a break, Richard Fleischer looked into the glass of the recording stage and saw Diamond just going berserk, smashing everything in sight. Fleischer quickly shouted, action! Diamond burst into the recording booth in an absolute fury and pulled off the scene. After shouting cut, Fleischer just asked him what happened. Diamond explained that he felt so bad that he was not able to pull off the scene, he asked his band to play something that would make him angry, which was a Barry Manilow song. <laughs> 
All right, is the film garbage? Well, that's your point of view. I, I think it's worth watching once. If you're a fan of Neil Diamond, I think you'll you'll get a kick out of it. But yeah, if you're just you know looking for a great movie, this isn't it. Again, it goes back to when I grew up, and so I will always have a fondness for this, along with my parents as well. But again, the soundtrack is definitely what steals the show here. All right, so unfortunately, because the RIAA, which is the Record Industry Association of America, has decided to target podcasts, I had to pull all of my awesome soundtrack episode review episodes for from a few years ago. Never mind that you can hear all of these same songs on YouTube without copyright issues. <laughs> uh, in any case, because those episodes included music, I had to pull them. However, I decided when I finally got to specific film episodes, I will tack on those past interviews sans the music. And for this episode, you get to hear my biggest fan, my mom. So I'm going to play that for you now, and I will be back next week for yet another random movie, probably a better movie, from my DVD collection. Okay, we have back one of our most popular guests after (laughs) Saturday Night Fever. People couldn't get enough of you. It was... It was Ralph Vieira, a.k.a. Dr. Fuck's favorite <laughs> guest, and it's my mom, Joanne. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and ask back to this again. I can't believe it. Maybe it was because of all the downloading I kept doing, listening to it. Oh, that's the secret you just gave it away. That's where all the downloads came from. Great. Not really. Yeah. No, a lot of my friends uh, Download. uh, downloaded well, it. Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully they'll download the jazz singer as well. I hope so. So we're going to cover the 1980 version of uh, the jazz singer, of course, starring Neil Diamond. Um, there were, as you mentioned, two other, ver- two or three other versions. Two. Okay. Two. Yeah. This was a third. the The original uh, started in um, 1927, mm-hmm. and it Without was Jolson. Uh, no. No. Uh, well, it was actually he came. After that, he, he made that, but it was um, the first talkie right, movie. Right, right. And um, there was one other talkie movie before that, but... Uh, so it was yeah, all the was silent that. era. Yes. Okay. And so uh, it was interesting that uh, when the people were watching the movie, uh, when Al Jolson, yeah, started to speak and... You heard him say in one part, wait a minute, wait a minute, and everybody looked, and they couldn't believe that, you know, this was happening. Right, because in silent movies, everything, you had someone playing the piano, like kind of the score, and that was like your background music, but everything was basically uh, placer cards, which had dialogue in it. And um, it was saying that... uh, he there were different reels there was like 12 different reels mm-hmm. that they had to incorporate with him singing at, at the theater at the, the uh, yeah. yeah um so that it would all blend right. in together i mean so. everything is so streamlined now with technology i mean you really had everything had to be done tightly to make sure that everything came out cohesively it was a big deal back then yeah. watching motion pictures yeah um so, yeah, so, I mean, that's definitely, and there are nods in this film to the original Al Jolson, Jolson version. We'll get into that. This movie did okay. Um, it, it, was the, it was the soundtrack, really, that made it the hit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, went, in researching it, uh, I saw some of the critics, and it said it was um, um, actually Neil Diamond had gotten a Razzie. 
Yes, it was, I think, the very <laughs> first Razzie. And this is basically, it's a better term, it was a Raspberry Award yeah. uh, for the worst acting or worst movie. Right. Um, and so, yes, I think he was inaugurated as the very first. <laughs> but it said, yeah, that the the movie was okay, but the soundtrack is, is what, what, carried what carried it. And frankly, yeah. look, I mean, I wouldn't consider Flashdance a great movie, but the soundtrack's no. amazing. Yeah. Footloose, I enjoy Footloose a lot, but it's the soundtrack. So exactly. This, this may have set a precedence of... Uh, eh, movies, but great soundtracks. Yeah. So that's that's kind of cool. First, let's get into how you guys warped me as a child to become this huge Neil Diamond fan. So, how old was I when I was way into Neil Diamond? Boy, I it must have been five or six years old. Okay. And um, Dad was a great fan of Neil Diamonds, and you, I, I you like, were? Okay. and I like Neil Diamond also. Because you guys had all of his old albums, like all his sixties to seventies stuff. Yeah. So, In fact, yeah. when I was looking through my albums, the mm -hmm. LPs, I was coming across the, the, the ones, ones you yeah. know that uh, that he had done, and it, yeah, yeah. It was funny. We had one that I have a picture of you mm -hmm. holding the album, yeah. standing in front of the fireplace with your arm raised up, <laughs> like you know, like Neil, uh, like Neil Diamond at yeah. the end when he puts his arm up. Well, we're gonna have to put that up on Facebook. For yes, we will. So, okay. We will. Great. Um, so there are stories, and I'll tell it because they've been told to me by both you and, and Dad. Um, supposedly, like people would ask me my name, and I'd say I'd say I was Neil Diamond. Exactly. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, Christmas time, we put up the stockings, and we had to have a Neil, Neil Diamond, Diamond stocking. stocking. And the irony of all that is Neil Diamond's Jewish. Yeah. So that's yeah. There we go. And and the Jewish faith comes in pretty heavily in this movie too. Yes. Uh, and also, it goes without saying, we have to talk about my uncle and Uncle Daryl, who listens. And originally, he had HBO, which meant if we needed access... This is before kind of home movies became... Like, you would rent movies, but you didn't buy movies. No. So if you wanted to watch something, you either tape it off television, which had commercials, or you were lucky enough to have an uncle who would tape it, you know, on HBO, which he did. He'd tape Back to the Future for us. He taped all sorts of movies. Well, one of them was The Jazz Singer, because we love The Jazz Singer soundtrack so much. So then he kindly tapes the jazz singer and probably i don't know 75 minutes into the movie you go from neil diamond to ed asner so <laughs> and for about 10 minutes you have no idea what happens in the jazz singer and so um yeah, i think it was the lou grant show yeah yeah that was yeah. great yeah, yeah it was a great great show <laughs> and which is the, the only time i've ever seen lou grant was is halfway through the jazz singer and so uh we forever will will remind Uncle Daryl of the jazz singer in the Lou Grant uh, well, Dad, fiasco. Dad had said to me uh, when I rewatched the the movie that yeah, you liked, which part is uh, uh, oh, he's, I, and I said he said how did you like the movie did you like the movie again and I said yeah I said but you know it was missing Ed Asner yeah and <laughs> always will well until I finally bought this on DVD maybe ten years ago there's ten minutes of the movie that are brand new to me because. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> we had missed it. So that was the charm of way back when where, you know, it's like hearing a record that has a certain skip in a song you've heard a million times. Mm -hmm. You always hear the skip. Yeah. And then when all of a sudden when you hear it without the skip, it's not the same song. Yeah. Well, it's kind yeah. of like this movie. Yeah. All right. So going back to the album, it, this album was super popular. And considering how popular Neil Diamond was in the 60s and 70s, you'd be surprised to hear that this is actually one of his biggest selling albums. Yeah. I and mean, it sold over f 5 million copies, which is, you know, insane. It's probably his last 
big hit, I would say, album-wise. Yeah. And yeah. so it reached as high as number three on the charts. So. Yeah. It, um, it said the soundtrack was released in November of 1980, mm -hmm. uh, originally on Capitol Records mm -hmm. uh, instead of his then-usual Columbia Records. Uh, because the film was produced by EMI Films, right. which was owned by the parent company of the label for which the soundtrack was released. Right. The soundtrack was re-released, though, in February of 96 on Columbia Records. Okay, because he probably got his States. master tapes back in the company yeah. and switch it up. Yeah. I, well, and then it said after Diamond signed with uh, Capitol Records, yeah. the album was reissued by Capitol yeah. globally. And this is all record label stuff yeah. to get more cash <laughs> fused, and, and maybe they put bonus tracks on there, that, and suckers like me go out and rebuy things a million times because of that. So speaking of owning it, you guys own this on, you, and actually she brought it here. Um, they had it on vinyl. They still right. have it on vinyl. I'm yeah. sure it's scratched to hell, but yeah. I don't know where this is only part. This is like the sleeve yeah. that goes with you don't it, actually and have I don't. The... I don't know what happened to it. Okay, so, yeah. it's probably there with the other albums because I didn't go through all of right. them. But um, yeah, because I was looking to see, you know, who produced, who arranged, yeah. and um, like the other albums that we did or the soundtracks. Yeah. They were different, different artists. artists. Yeah, this Whereas, is all Neil Diamond. All Neil Diamond, yeah. uh, except for a few of um, the traditional the, the, Jewish songs. The, no, though that that he had uh, people that helped arrange and write with him. True, that is a good and, point. And uh, so he had. Um, I have a, a bunch of that that I that you looked people up. that I looked good. up. Okay. Well, once so, we get into that, we will. Yeah. And then so. I, you had a bunch of his stuff on 8-track. I totally remember that. And I think my favorite song by him was like the Bumblebee Boogie. Was, is that oh, allegedly yeah, yeah, the famous? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, yeah. I'll play that later in the soundtrack. Okay. So later, but that was on one of his... It might have been on the same album as You Don't Bring Me Flowers. And okay. I think that was the name of the album, too. Cause that was a huge hit with Barbara yeah. Streisand. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's just get right into it. And... Um, it starts, and I don't think this, and you would know because you just rewatched the movie, right? Um, it was. It, it starts it, out with America, oh, right? But yeah. is it is it chronological? All these songs? Um, uh, it kind pretty, of pretty much, which is so. interesting because yeah. usually they don't do that. Yeah, uh, and a lot of them. Um, well, when we come to yeah. them, they were kind of like background sure, music, sure. or they were partial, yeah. and didn't or like go. Through, yeah, yeah, didn't go through the whole song. It was different. Uh, times in the okay. movie. Yeah. Well, let's get it. I mean, they they start with a bang with America. I mean, this is oh, this yeah. is actually one of his biggest hits of all of his songs. So, yeah. uh, how do you feel about America? Oh, wonderful! I it is great. I mean, it really it kind of gives you goosebumps, yeah. you know. Um, and the opening of it fits so perfect because it's you're walking in, you're in New York, yeah. and, it's, and it's yeah. going through all the different cultures mm -hmm. that are there and the ethnic groups, mm -hmm. and so it fits perfectly uh, for the opening song. Yeah, I mean, considering most immigrants, especially in the early 1900s, they were coming from they were coming from different countries. You had to go through Ellis Island, and uh, so New York was kind of the point for everyone to, to land, and then uh, before you have the Statue of Liberty and you have all that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, it's... One thing I will say about the soundtrack, and it's mostly Neil Diamond in general, 70s and on, it's very produced. It's very, dare I say, overproduced, like, because there's, 
it's very glossy. It's very, you know, as opposed to his 60s stuff, which is very stripped down. It's very acoustic. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, I think the time. Beca because of the arrangements sure. and the people that he had uh, arranging and orchestrating the songs, um, that's why it, it, well, he has such a uh, wonderful Distinctive voice, voice. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can understand every word. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, I really enjoy listening yeah. to any song he really sings. Well, he can sing, you know, he has a rasp to his voice, but he can also sing melodic. Yeah. And he can also sing, uh, you know, very clear. So so you've seen him in a concert. I think you've seen him once or twice. Just just once. And yeah, actually, and the that's, Oakland Coliseum. that's actually a funny story. I was supposed to go, and I think I got in trouble, and you guys didn't take me. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. But I saw him probably five years ago, and yeah, when this song comes on, people lose it, like because yeah. it's it's great, it's very powerful, especially nowadays. You know, like there's there's a, you know, people on either side of the legal illegal immigration right. thing. I mean, you think about it. I mean, the, America is the land of opportunity. This song kind of stands for all that. Whatever yeah. you know, you might right. believe one way or another. The song does mean a lot. Um, you know, people come here, come to America for a better life, right. and that this song kind of hits. This you would know, be that. a great national anthem. It is really. actually. Yeah. It's, it's actually it's better, better than what we have. The national yeah. national, well, the, we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but their actual national anthem is not a song. It's a poem. No. Yeah. It was never meant to be a song. Right. So right. I think this or America the Beautiful would be Absolutely. a much better national yeah. anthem. Um, I love the beginning of the songs. It kind of starts kind of haunting. You know, uh, it's kind of yeah. very dark. And then it just kind of rolls into it and it's really well done. Right. And. Um, one thing I always found interesting is um, the producers tried to create kind of a faux live feel. So you hear like almost like an audience, which I think mm -hmm. is to play up to the actual scene in the movie. But this is all recorded in the studio and the added crowd noise later. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is the showstopper. So this is I get why they did it. And yeah. it opens the film. It closes the film. Right. OK, so the next one and I'm probably going to butcher this, but yeah. it's called Adone Alone, I think. Yes. And I. I I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's even on the soundtrack. It's like 35 seconds long. I know. I was. I, this is a. Uh, um, it's in Hebrew. It's, yeah. It means eternal Lord or Sovereign of the Universe. Uh -huh. uh, and is it strictly metrical hymn in the Jewish liturgy? Um, and each line is composed of two segments. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, and it has been a regular part of daily and Shabbat uh, liturgy since the 15th century. Okay. The song is sung in many different tunes, and it can be virtually any uh, due to its uh, meter, okay. the way it goes. And So uh, the tone can be Right, different. and uh, they said that many synagogues uh, like to use it seasonal Interesting. Uh, tunes. Uh, so they could use it at Shabbat or before Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's also sometimes set for fun. Right. Um, it said to secular tunes such as Yankee Doodle. Really? Which is, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so we might as well get into it. So to so part of the film, though, has to do with the Jewish religion. So his, I believe his father, played by Lawrence Olivier, wants him to be a rabbi. I, no, not no, a, no. no, a cantor. A cantor, okay. Yeah. What is the difference between, a, what is a cantor? The cantor is the one who sings all the the hymns and things within the synagogue. I, uh, I mean, I don't know totally sure. everything, but whereas the rabbi is it's the, like kind of like the, the priest the, of the exactly of the, okay. of the congregation. Got it. Uh, but the cantor is the one that always sings, which makes sense because he wants the, to be a music artist. Yeah. Okay. And, so. and so yeah, so that's, uh, 
all generations of his family were cantors, were cantors yeah. and that's why he wanted his son to be the cantor. Right. And of course, it's the old adage that he doesn't want to do exactly what it is. He wants to be a rock musician, or he wants to go to Hollywood. He wants to leave. I think that. he, well, he wants to express his, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so he doesn't want to follow the traditional. Um, right. And keep in mind, at this time, he's married to, he's married uh, with his Jewish wife, and, and, and uh, she's yeah. happy with, right. she doesn't want him to really uh, go out there. Mm -hmm. um, she's content being the Jewish wife right. with the Jewish home and traditions, and, traditions. and uh, so she's, She's happy, but he he has that itch, right, to get out to yeah. get out there. So this kind of this transitions into what will eventually become the next song. But he, this so this is being sung in the synagogue, and so Neil Time. I think he, his name's Jess. Yes, Jess Robin. Well, it's Robinovich, but then he he changes it to Robin, and uh, so his character is singing this in the synagogue, and then he kind of changes the lyrics to to quickly finish the song so he can get out of there. Well, I, his one of his buddies, yeah, was Bubba, a, a, yeah. they're in a group of there's four other black guys. Yeah, it's a band. They're singers, yeah. yeah. And so um, I guess they have a gig. Yeah, and you gotta so get he got to get out there, yeah. and he's pointing to his watch yeah. and. Uh, Neil Diamond is yeah. uh, speeding it up, yeah. and his father's looking at him like, well, what, "What's going on here?" Yeah. You know, and uh, making it kind of—it's actually a really funny scene because Bubba's there, and he's he's trying to put on his yarmulke, and the yarmulke's falling off, and everything. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's it's actually really funny. So, uh, which then goes into uh, "You Baby," which I've always liked this song. It's got more of an R and B uh, feel and everything, but this is. The scene itself, and another podcast called "How Did This Get Made?" did did a whole review about this movie, and I think they kind of they touched upon it, but they missed the point because nowadays everything's so PC, you might not get the actual homage of this scene. So Neil Diamond is in, he's like my mom said, with with his buddies who are all black, and he's part of this group. Well, he's the only white guy, so they're going to go perform at a black club. Right. So they decide to paint him as black. Yeah. Well, this is a direct homage to Al Jolson being in blackface back in the original jazz singer, and that's if if you know you do research, that's that's what this is about. It has nothing to do with you know whatever you might think it means. Um, so everyone kind of has a knee jerk reaction probably to this this scene, but really it's it's more historical. It's actually very lighthearted if, if you think about it. Uh, and yeah. they brought it. Up back when the first jazz singer, mm -hmm. um, it said um, the use of the black face mm -hmm. was a common practice naturally back in back in those times in the early nineteen hundreds twenties yeah, yeah. Uh, which is now widely considered racist yeah. but in contrast to the racial jokes and innuendos brought out in uh, subsequent persistence in early sound films, uh, the black imagery uh, in the jazz singer is the core. Of the film's central theme, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that the Jews were persecuted always, sure. and so this is a thing that, by being identifying with the black, this is they're showing we're being persecuted. We're all also. one. We're, like, we're not but as different as you think. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was part of um, right. Well, I, I think that's and that's part part of the problem with today's culture is there's less. 
less thinking, like thinking it through, as opposed to just immediately like jumping on something and calling it racist or calling it sexist, calling exactly. it whatever, instead of really looking into it before, okay, is this real racism or is this something that is deeper? Uh, going back to the song, uh, the song I've always liked. I think I think it's a really well done song, and it's funny because the scene itself, they forget to paint his hands. Yeah, and so of course one of the um, hecklers, and do you know who the heckler is? Uh, yes, you know that, him. Uh, it was he was in. Um, I be, no, well, no, I was going to say. Not John Witherspoon. No, John Witherspoon, okay. who is a was famous a, comedian. He's the MC. He's the MC. Yeah, who's right, great. Right. Uh, no. So Ernie Hudson is the heckler, and this is four years before he became Winston in Ghostbusters. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. So that's, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so he's also in The Crow. He has a distinct <laughs> role in The Crow. Um, and so, yeah, so he discovers that Neil Diamond's white because, and after it finished, everyone loves the song because, right. you know, Neil Diamond, whether you, you like him or not, he's, he's got some soul. So they, go, so they go after him and a riot starts because yeah. they, they didn't want the white guy there. Yeah. So they end up getting arrested and his uh, very disappointed father has to bail him out of jail. So, yeah. Which they thought he had called his wife and right. she told the father. And yeah. They're thinking that the wife's coming to bail him out. No. The father's there. The father, yeah. Who doesn't say anything. He just, he's very disappointed. Okay, so let's go to arguably, this probably maybe the second most popular track on the album, and that is Love on the Rocks. There's three major hits on this, uh, one being America, one being Love on the Rocks. We'll get later to the third major hit. Um, but Neil Diamond's, and we, we touch upon this, he's always had a strong voice. He could do... You know, more, I wouldn't call them heavy, but more kind of traditional rock songs, especially when he was younger. But he could also sing ballads very well. You know, he had a huge hit with uh, You Don't Bring Me Flowers, Barbara Streisand, where he could, you know, sing, you know, very fluidly. Um, but this song is very simple, and it starts with kind of a light synthesizer, and then it kind of kicks in a bit. It's a bit schmaltzy, you know, you got the big orchestra, but it, I think it works well with, with uh, mostly because Neil's vocals are so good. And uh, I, I still don't get sick of this track. I enjoyed it as a kid. I enjoy it now. Um, and it's also kind of fitting with the story storyline because Neil Diamond's character is se it ends up being separated from his original right. wife. And then he starts a new relationship with Lucille Ball's daughter, right. Lucy Arnett. So how, how do you feel about Love in the Rock? Oh, I, I, I like this. And it was also, um, it was written by Neil Diamond. And okay. Gilbert, um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Bichard, okay. Bichard, maybe mm -hmm. it's Bichard. Uh, he is French um, man, okay. born in France, um, and was a lot older than Neil. Okay, uh, but evidently he had um, done a lot of um, writing uh, in France, mm. and so anyway, they had gotten together on this. The f song was released as a single and reached number two on the Billboard Hot. 100 for three weeks. Mm -hmm. 1980. Uh, yeah, okay. behind uh, "Starting Over" by Gen John Lennon. Okay. Uh, and um, in addition to the main chart, "Love on the Rocks" was also made it to number three on the Billboard's uh, U.S. Uh, a Adult Contemporary chart. Yeah, because he was um, big in adult contemporary in the 70s and 80s. Like yeah. yeah. And uh, said it, it performed less well in the UK, reaching only to number 17. Mm -hmm. But uh, it yeah, was. Yeah, I don't know how popular Neil Diamond was internationally. I'm sure he was. He, but, he yeah. was, but I don't think. Um, let's see, wait, it said Vicki Pippin 
which was from, she was a critic on Billboard magazine, mm -hmm. uh, called Love on the Rocks, a powerful ballad in true Diamond style. Yeah, he um, definitely had his own style. That, yeah. It's a Neil Diamond's biographer, Laura uh, Jackson, described the lyrics as taking a sometimes cynical look at a man who is trapped in a relationship and is disillusioned with life. There you go. <laughs> Okay, next is Amazing and Fuse, and honestly, I did not remember this song being from the movie, and that's why we had you watch it, and when was this actually this in the movie? This was sung in a club in L.A. where he was um, auditioning, sort of. Um, kind of like halfway through? Well, he he met um, Molly. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Des, Who's the Arnaz. And she, uh, when they were in the studio of the, the, there was a, a rock star that was supposedly doing Love on the Rocks, but okay. he was doing it to a, a different, fast tempo. Right, right. And like a boom, 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 yeah. real uh, hard, heavy metal type rock. Yeah. And uh, Neil was saying, this is supposed to be a ballad. Right. And so she recorded it when he asked, can I tell you how it yeah. should be sung? And the guy says, yeah, go ahead. So after he sings it, the guy fires him, right. the, the rock star. So anyway, he left, and um, Lucy Arnaz loved the song. So yeah. she comes out to him, and she says, this is a hit. Yeah. You know? So she goes after... Oh, the the bald guy in the car? Like she kept yes. capturing this guy over and over yes. again. Yes, yeah, yeah. and he was a promoter. Yeah. And so his his friend, one of the guys that was in the, the uh, group, the yeah. band... Um, was uh, working as a waiter at this place. Right. And so that's where he got this gig, mm -hmm. and that's where he sang this, where the guy, the promoter, could come and listen to him. Right. And so that's where that um, that came. Amazing. Yeah, so when, when is the last time you heard this soundtrack? Because I probably haven't heard it in 30 years. Like, I've obviously heard the hits, but, like, the soundtrack as a whole, I haven't sat down and listened to it in yeah. years. Well, the since you gave me the uh, CD, it's probably the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I really enjoy this track. It's I, a good. It's good. Yeah. I you know, there's really not one song on the track that I don't like on the album. On yeah. the album, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this one it's it's got the Neil Diamond rasp when he's getting the chorus kicks in. There's little subtle touches, you know, from the background singers. Um, and that's the thing about and we already mentioned it. The Neil Diamond's albums are very produced, at least later. Um, and a little overproduced, but they sound amazing. They really kind of um, leap out of your speakers if you have a good sound system, especially on vinyl back in the day. Uh, eight tracks, not so much. Um, you know, just, <laughs> that's when I heard a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a good song. Yeah, yeah, uh, I I enjoyed it. All right, so let's go to another quick song. It's kind of a silly little song. It's uh, on the Robert E. Lee. Right, and this was uh, done at. Um, this was after they found out that he uh, was going to get the gig. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, right. They're at the party? And yeah, yeah. they said, let's celebrate. Yeah. So they're at the party, and that's mm -hmm. when they um, when he sings that. Yeah. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's it's a cute little song. Yeah. So you know what the song reminds me of? What? Uh, going to Disneyland, you hear kind of like the fake old-time band uh -huh, kind of uh -huh. like playing in the background. That's kind of got that... You know, that's that style. It's totally catchy, and it, it feels like filler, like on the album, but it actually, you can't help but enjoy it, and it's really quick, so it doesn't wear out its welcome, uh, and I really like the banjo playing on this. Yeah. Like it's it's kind of different than anything else on the album. Yeah. Because it's almost got like kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to say like ragtime, but like it's it's very Southern, American Southern 
music yeah. from like the early 1920s. Maybe it's a, a nod back to uh, the Robert Ely or, yeah, exactly. yeah. or yeah, the the, the old um, boats like the, the River steam Queen, boat. Yeah. steamboat yeah. type thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of steamboat Willie in Disneyland, there you go. <laughs> so. All right, so let's get to another typical Neil Diamond song, and this is Summer Love. What? Where is this in the movie? And Actually, I think I remember. I think it's at the end, but... It's yeah. at the concert. Yes, the, the final concert, right? Uh, no, it's not the final concert. It's when he gets the gig. Okay. Uh, and it's before he really makes it big. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he was... They, he went for the audition at that little place, the little uh, coffee house. Okay. And the guy liked him. Yeah. So yeah. then they celebrate. So then he was going to be like an opening act yes. for this guy. Okay. And that's where he um, he does that he does song. This song. Okay. Up. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, because it starts out real slow. Yeah. Where he's playing the harmonica. Yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and he's kind of getting not booze, but like, oh, oh great, no, get this, get this, this? schmuck yeah. off there. Yeah. And then it goes into yeah. more. Upbeat. You like how you use the Jewish term? So that was <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. <laughs> do you like this song? I do. Okay. I do. Yeah. Yeah, this is to me. It's a typical mid-paced ballad from Neil, and. Um, yeah, it's it's not bad, um, but it reminds me of something, you know, you guys used to play, like the music you guys used to play, if you had company over for dinner. Like, it's very, like, mellow, unoffensive, you could have it on in the background, right. and it, this really isn't something I would normally listen to, but in the context of the soundtrack, I think it's fine. It's very schmaltzy, but it's it's not bad. It's 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 not a bad song. He, he's very pleasant to listen to. Like, yes. Not, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, he has a, a nice voice. Yeah, he's just... got a great voice, and he still has it. And fortunately, he's had some health problems. I think he's done touring. Nice throat. Yeah. yeah. So, it, which is kind of sad, but you know, he's in his seventies now. Yeah. So we yeah. all we all gotta slow down <laughs> sometimes. Get old. I know. <laughs> All right, so let's go to the next song, and this is probably the the third biggest hit on the album, and this this is one of the three, and this is Hello Again. Yeah. And uh, not too much different than Love on the Rocks, but this is just a straight-up pompous Neil Diamond ballad. He makes no apologies about singing and writing ballads like this, and uh, some might find it cheesy. I kind of find it sort of earnest and charming. It reminds me of being a kid in the 80s. And the best part about this song is you really get to focus on Neil's voice, which always sounds amazing. Um, you can hear every note perfectly, and it, it works really well if you're in the mood for a ballad. This is playing during the most confusing part of this movie. Okay, he leaves Lucy Arnaz for what it seems like 10 minutes in the context of the film. He grows a beard, he goes out on the road, he's on the bus, he's playing in little dive bars and everything. However, when he t returns... He's got a kid. Like, okay, so ten minutes equals nine months in uh, in movie time, and they never do explain it. They don't explain well, it. Well, it uh, hello. It's four times within the movie. Hello, hello again, there is played. Okay. Um, the the first one is in um, Molly's apartment, and this is in the beginning when he first meets Molly, mm -hmm. and he sits down at the piano and he's just. He starts singing just the first part of it. Right. This is like he's just writing this. Right. He's okay. got a he's got a hint, he's got something a melody in his head. Right. His... Then the second time is he's with Molly again. Mm -hmm. This is he's where a... I think they um, conceive the baby. No. <laughs> no. He, well, they're getting close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And he's at dinner with Molly. Yeah. And um, it kind of continues. Uh, and then the third time he's 
in the studio and with Molly Mm -hmm. and um, he sings the whole song and then the fourth time that hello again comes he comes back from when he's He's being away yeah yeah. Uh, and uh, which had to be Molly. ten months, nine months. Well, at least, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because you never see her pregnant. No, but you know that she is, and then that's when when he gets to um, when he's in the studio recording, mm-hmm. and he gets to be almost like it reminds me that he's taking on the um, mannerisms of that the rocker that yeah. he thought was so horrible. Yeah. he was doing he's the to get same a big head. thing. Yeah, yeah, and so. He gets upset, but it's right after his father. He had yeah. an out out with uh, his doesn't father. Doesn't he appear? Like he shows up. His he, father. He sees, his father shows up, sees, sees Molly, Molly yeah. and thinks. You know, he he tells his father that him and his wife were getting a divorce. Yeah. They both. Uh, well, the father didn't like that. You know, so he rips his his clothing, which in Jewish tradition means you're, you're dead, dead to, to me. me. Right. And so then he leaves. So after that. Neil's never the same, right? Kind of. He's because he's at odds with his father. Yeah. So that's when he leaves the studio and drives off and in his Mustang yeah, yeah. and just drives the car to death and it dies. Yeah. And, and he just starts walking. So on the road, you yeah. figure he's then gone for at least, at least nine to ten nine months. Nine to ten months. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So again, they never explain it. Uh, great moment to play this ballad when he shows up again, but hello again, here's your kid, you selfish bastard. Let's play it. Next song is Acapulco, and uh, yeah, I don't remember this in the movie at all, so it wouldn't... Yeah, I'm trying, I I tried that one in Hey Louise, um, but I'm thinking it was in one of the... Were they on a boat, maybe? No, well, they played Alcapuco. Yeah. When he goes to, uh, she leaves because he he did the concert. Yeah. And Neil's wife comes back. Yeah. And he's telling her how he's going to sign this big contract, mm-hmm. and she doesn't want it. Right. And they kind of decide because they're this still married is, at the time when he's kind yes. of seeing Molly. So yeah. yeah. Well, he, but he Molly knows that he's married. He's married. Yeah. yeah. And so Molly leaves yeah. because she doesn't want to come between him right. and his wife. So uh, the wife and Neil, they decide that they're going to split. So Neil goes to the docks mm-hmm. where Molly's washing the, uh, the on boat. A sailboat yeah. with this guy. And they're playing Acapulco in the background. Got it. Okay. So, but he never really sings it. No. No, yeah, so, so this is one where he probably just recorded it. It might have been yeah. on, maybe set for another album. They need to fill out a soundtrack. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it kind of reminds you of his early acoustic materials from the 60s. Uh, you know, if they removed the overproduction and orchestra, it would have fit nicely in that era. Yeah. You know, kind of yeah. the um, solitary man, type, that type of era. Uh, that being said, the song's pleasant. It's quick. Never really wears out its welcome. This is a good one. It's a nice change of pace after the ballad. So I, I think it works yeah, pretty well. I I like I like the song. Mm-hmm. I you know, it was good. Okay, next is Hey Louise. And uh, this one I totally remember from the soundtrack, but uh, but I don't really remember it in the movie. So what <laughs> you... I don't either. Okay. Those are the f- the, the only two, two songs yeah. that I um, thought how, did I miss this or where? What I, I know it must have been somewhere. I it had um, a, was in the concert. I heard him was singing. It, it. Was in the final concert, maybe. 
I don't think no, because the final concert he only he sang only does on America. America. Okay, so it had to be maybe the concert before. Maybe because it's got the faux audience background, which means it has to be in one of the concerts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I've always liked his upbeat material. So this is one I, st I liked then. I still like today. The guitar work's really d well done on this. I mean, I, it's not like heavy, but it's it's kind of like it reminds you of maybe like um, when Elvis was performing live. It's that kind of guitar tone to it. And uh, this is actually one of the highlight tracks for me on, um, on the album that isn't one of the hits. Yeah, this was uh, done with uh, Alan Lindgrad. Okay. Um, and Alan was actually, he uh, was part of Neil Diamond's uh, success story. Okay. Um, was he in his band? Yes. Okay. I guess Neil picked a lot of good and talented men and women to be in his, band. In his Especially band. when he had some success. I mean, he could yeah. pretty much have the pick of the litter. Uh, it said uh, Alan was the longest serving member of the Neil Diamond Band. Mm -hmm. And upon his retirement from the band in 2015, well, yeah, he yeah. joined Neil way back in the 70s. Wow. And became a prominent part of Neil's band. And um, then he elevated to musical director. Mm -hmm. Um, and he played this keyboard, uh, synthesizer. Okay. Uh, and he was also a composer and arranger, um, with Neil on many hits and also with Frank Sinatra and Tina Turner. So he's a pretty well-known, well, well, well established so, uh, musician. Yeah. He died, he died in this June okay. of this year at only, he's only 64. Well, let's, let's honor him and yeah. play Hey Louise. Okay. Okay, so then this is where the uh, the album starts to get a little boring, in my opinion. So you, I mean, it's ten songs. So after ten songs, you're kind of pushing your luck. So, um, well, I like the songs of life. Okay, so th that's and, where we're getting into and, songs of and life. And that was the uh, traveling of when he got angry and got in his. So this is his, where he's on his on the road. For on the road, nine months, and right? uh, yeah, and so he's going through town after town, or he's hitchhiking. And um, sitting in a coffee shop, looking out the window mm -hmm. in some. It fits the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's yeah it's talking about life and what you have to go through, mm -hmm. and um, I think it fits well in that part of the movie. Right. Um, and I liked it. I I liked the the song. It mm -hmm. had good lyrics to it. Yeah, this is another ballad, very synth-heavy. To me, the song is kind of boring. <laughs> and since there's other ballads that are better, this just seems like filler. But you bring up a good point. In the context of the film, I think it works great. Yeah. In the soundtrack, to me, it just it, it doesn't really pop for me. Uh, I used to skip this as a kid, and well, my yeah, tastes haven't changed at all. <laughs> I skipped it on this one, too. So, But again, my mom's always right, So, and people obviously download it. So, So I hope her friends like this song. Okay, let's come back, and we're going to go to Jerusalem. And where is this song being played? Okay, this is when um, when oh, he's I know in when this the is being, studio. Yes, he gets pissed. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he's recording it, and he keeps doing it over and over. Yeah, again. and he and he sounds just like the 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 like I said the the rocker that was singing his song on the rocks because the guy kept saying you're not going fast enough it has yeah. to be faster it has to be faster. And I remember the expression on the drummer like what, what do you want me to do man yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, this was the same kind of thing like you know do it over again what yeah. are you doing what are you doing yeah. and, and so and then he finally walks out on oh, this he also says. When um, 
Lucio Ness comes in to yeah. him, says, I want to talk, you know, kind of talk to him to find out what's going on. Yeah. He says, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. Yeah. And then that's when he leaves yeah. and goes on. And his, she might have been career. wanting to tell him about the kid. Well, she was, yeah. you know, because she had just found out yeah. at that time. And one of the, the band, uh, Bubba, Bubba uh, yeah. mm -hmm. had said, did you tell him? And she said, no, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a good upbeat track, and to me, after the boring song of life, this is kind of a welcome <laughs> for me. Yeah, um, it probably sounded too close to Acapulco and Hey Louise, and uh, so they split it up to kind of you know split up the tone. Uh, there's nothing really super special about it, but I never skip it, you know. So, and it's it is a good song in the context of the movie, you know, just seeing how he was recording, how his how his uh, uh, how his life changed. It's kind of I don't know what. I really didn't get into the lyrics at all, but I don't know how it has to do with Jerusalem at all. Uh, well, let's see. Tom Hensley also, uh, he co-wrote it, I guess, with, okay. um, and he was part of, of the band. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with with Neil, he uh, played on a couple of other um, albums with uh, Neil Diamond, with the Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Which was another that soundtrack. That was actually his first soundtrack album. And Serenade. Yeah. That was another one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so in 76, he he was asked to join um, Neil in, the, uh, in his band. Mm -hmm. He um, did a lot of the um, songs with him. Mm-hmm. He also collaborated on Hello Again. There you go. Yeah. And uh, Summer Love and Amazed and Confused. So he did, uh, he did a he lot did, of, he, he covered did, a lot of these yeah. songs. So. Yeah. But, all right, here's another one that, uh, yeah, I skip. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> Cole Nidre, My Name is Yusel, and, uh, or Yusel, I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. It's, uh, it's another traditional Jewish track, and this is, I believe, is being sung when Neil Diamond is trying to kind of reconnect with his father after he disowns him. Uh, after he, you know, left New York for California. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is kind of just sounds like they're filling out the soundtrack, and that's fine. Yeah, I could have done without yeah. these. <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I don't know what audience are really shooting for here, because if you're into traditional Jewish music, you're probably not going to listen to the jazz singer, but uh, I don't know. I, yeah, it just... Uh, it said it had a an, an, an eventful history, mm -hmm. both in itself and in the influence on the legal status of the Jews. Ah. Um, so, but it said some rabbis in the 19th century uh, wanted to take it away from their prayer book. Interesting. I guess this was like uh, it was recited in the synagogue mm -hmm. before uh, the uh, at the beginning. Of an evening service. Okay. Um, so it and it said it was not a prayer, although it was commonly spoken as if it were. Mm -hmm. So um, it's actually a declaration, if anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it was used, I guess, with uh, Yom Kippur. So were. that's why. You know. It was a quote, Yeah. It was like the yeah. It was coming. This is at the end when he wants to, it was Yom Kippur, to make atonement with his father right. of forgiveness. And so it's when he went back into the synagogue. Right. Um, he, so he, actually, this is kind of a vital part. So he just, I think this is after he discovered he had a baby. Yes. And so it's kind of like, and then I think he shows him a picture afterwards of, yes. the, of his yes. newborn son. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in the context of film, I think it works real well. Right. There's 14 songs on this album, and they could have cut three of them. Yeah, I think you... Could have yeah. left off the traditional Jewish hymns. Yes. And 
the song that's coming up next, which is all it is is a reprise of America. <laughs> so it's kind of pointless. It's just a shorter version. Yeah. So and it's interesting. So maybe in the context of having it on vinyl, where you have to physically turn it over, maybe it doesn't. It's not as bad. So you have America on both sides. Yeah. But in the in the CD era. Yeah, you're, you're basically hearing the same song twice yeah. in a row. So, um, but again, as if you listen to the Ghostbusters episode with Danielle, we had Ghostbusters the lyrics, and then at the very end, Ghostbusters just the instrumental. So maybe it was a common practice right there. But there's 14 songs on here, and you probably could have cut out. You could add an 11 song album, and it would have been pretty strong. Yeah. Um, all right. Final thoughts. How do you feel about the movie after watching it? Uh, it was okay. Mm-hmm. It wasn't your best. Did you like it better when, when it first came out, or you? You know, and I was trying to remember if I went to the show and saw it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, I don't remember. Or did you just buy the album I, and then? And that might have been it. Mm-hmm. And then saw the movie later. later. Yeah. Um, but like, I like musicals. Yeah. So you know, because I go back now to. West Side Story, and yeah. I remember seeing West Side Story with my mom. Mm-hmm. We had gone to San Francisco to see it, and oh my gosh, that that was just, I thought that was the best. Yeah. And I watch it now, and there are parts of it that I think, uh, you know. Um, but that's kind of the charm of movies. You like, It's fun to kind of go back and things, like, I love this movie as a kid. Yeah. But I'm a kid, so like yeah. th- certain things don't even resonate. Like you see things. It's actually kind of neat and naive in a way to watch yeah. things when you're younger. Yeah. Because things don't bother you, and then you see them when you get older, and they they either either you have more life experience or, or something. Yeah. Like that. But um, but yeah. I but I I, th- I thought it was well, and I the characters played. I thought thought uh, Lucy Arnaz did a good job. Uh, yeah, her, I mean, she's a good actress. She is. She, yeah. uh, she's done a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like Bubba. Bubba's been in different things. Yes, movies. He, yeah. in fact, um, he was. It was funny. I uh, was looking at. Um, now watch, I can't find. Find it, your stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was. It I've was seen him in other things, like a lot of other. Yeah, he was in a, a lot of different sitcoms. Yeah, he has a regular with fellow newcomers. Okay, so he was. On the verge of bigger things, uh, promising. Let's see, he'd been a popular TV show talk uh, host. Was he in um, Car Wash? Nash, uh, he was, yes. Okay, yes, yeah, yes. I think he played like. The Burbs. The oh, Burbs yeah, in 1990. Yeah, with, or 19. Was that a TV show? Uh, the, yeah. Okay, so it must have been the offshoot of the Tom Hanks movie. And yeah, Car Wash was in 1977. Yeah, I, I just watched that the other day. It's funny. Oh, it's, it's good. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. George Carlin and. Um, <laughs> Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor plays like the king pimp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did uh, summer replacement laugh fest uh, mm-hmm. keep on? Yeah, he's a stand-up in. comedian. Yeah. Or he was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah he lived. He and was obviously, I mean, the most well-known actor in this film is Lawrence uh, Olivier, and so yeah. as we we're kind of talking earlier, he it might have been he might have been light on getting work. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised because he was an extraordinary actor. Yeah, I mean, um, in just a few years prior, he 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 was in. An amazing movie called Marathon Man, where he plays the the um, he plays a Nazi who's hiding in New York trying to get these diamonds, and uh, he's this like sadistic dentist, yeah. and he's in it with um, Dustin Hoffman and Roy Scheider, and uh, really good role. I mean, he's really good in that. In that, I, in this, it's almost like I don't know. It's kind of understated. He's almost overacting sometimes. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Neil Diamond for for being in his one and I, only movie, he's fine. Like, I thought he was fine. Yeah, yeah he. 
kind of played himself yeah. in, in, a, in a way. And uh, It's tough for musicians, I think. I mean, you, there are very the few people like Cher, where I think Cher is actually a very good actress. Yes, um, yes. But it's tough for, to, to start as a musician and become um, yeah. a really strong uh, actor. Yeah. You know who are good actors or uh, wrestlers? <laughs> They've turned into, like, you have The Rock and John Cena. They've actually, because you're almost acting yeah. when, you're, when you're a wrestler. Yeah. It's going off on tangent. You were talking about how West Side Story holds up. It doesn't hold up necessarily as well for you. Does Sound of Music hold up for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to think. And, like, Brigadoon. I still yeah. love that. And Seven uh, Brides and for Seven Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I don't know. I oh, I love the dancing in it, and I like the music, mm -hmm. but it was just you know I don't know the certain parts that I think. Mm. So for the soundtrack, would you keep listening to the soundtrack? Yes. Okay. So this yes. this kind of brought back. Yeah, I the... would uh, keep it the CD in my car and play it. Okay. Well, that's good. That's <laughs> good. All right, mom. Well, as always, you did a fabulous job. I don't have to research when I have my mom on because she'll spend hours doing all this great research and watching movies and. Um, it makes my job a lot easier. All I have to do is listen to the soundtracks. So. Well, it, it, thank you. And it, well, like I say, for having me, because if you didn't have me, there would be no podcast. That's and, true. And, and yeah, Dad had played a little role I in it. I know, I know. But yeah, <laughs> but well, I don't know because I'm super tall, so I don't know. Maybe you didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know. That's what we've always wondered. That's right. Well, it was funny because I was <clears throat> listening to your last podcast that mm -hmm. you. Uh, when you did your radio, um, my radio show in college, at college, and it brought back old memories because I remember listening on Thursday evenings, yeah. you know. And your sister, I can always remember. When do I call in to get free tickets? Yeah, she just wanted free stuff. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing has changed. And uh, yeah, that was what. Married into the right family. I know. So we. Uh, what, what used to happen is I would tell her when to call in because yes. she couldn't listen because back then. Streaming technology wasn't the same as it is now. So you, I think every now and then you could get it, but the technology just wasn't up to par. So unless you were literally at San Francisco State or in the studio, you probably couldn't hear it. And so a lot of times you heard the, because we had to tape Tapes. every show, yeah. so you heard the yeah. tape version. Um, but Kelly would call, my friends would call up and, and they would get stuff. And yeah. so Austin would get free tickets, which meant I got free tickets because he would take yeah. me. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a lot of fun. So yeah, just, yeah. You know, Brought back memories. That's right. So we'll probably do more of those when we're light on content. And so, but if I'm ever light on content, I'll just have you watch a movie and listen to a soundtrack. We'll, we'll have a, <laughs> and we'll have have a movie. Always. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And get all your friends to download this and we'll be I good will. to go. All I right. will. Thanks, Brian. Tell them to listen to the other ones too. Oh, absolutely. Well, they might be. I don't know. I you don't know. know. We'll see. Um, sometimes if they hear one, they want to listen to it. Right. This may be more up their speed, I think, than listening to other sounds. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's right. Yeah. We like to go for the uh, senior crowd so on this episode. <laughs> Every so. once in a while. Every once in a while. Yeah, that's all right. All right. Thanks, Mom. Okay. Bye. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.